Citizen Podcast. Hi, my name is Carrie Kelly, and welcome to another episode of Citizen Podcast, where we are exploring a citizenship of solidarity and how we show up for each other. Today we are talking with Marianne Williamson, spiritual activist, best-selling author, and total badass. What most people don't know about her is that she is a political powerhouse. In this episode, we're talking about the relationship between spirituality and politics, how to be a strong woman in today's world, and getting back to loving America again. I call Marianne Williamson the matriarch of our movement. Because she's not just bringing it on the spiritual front, she is bringing it on the political front and blazing a trail for what she calls integrative politics. A politics that is rooted in love and humanity and what we are here to do for one another. She is the author of 12 books, seven of which are on the New York Times bestseller list. Her mega hit, Return to Love, is a must for anyone trying to understand love, which is everyone. And in it is one of my favorite quotes of all time a quote that has often been miscredited to Nelson Mandela. But if you know her, and after you listen to this podcast, you can't deny these are very much her words. They go like this. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people will not feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. And it goes on from there. But this quote has been so formative for me in my life, especially as a woman who has been trained and conditioned to be quiet, to small down, to not ruffle feathers, to be a good girl. And I've been reflecting on that since my conversation with Marianne, who I look up to as a strong woman but who, as you will hear in this episode, has also experienced that stereotypical typecasting for being powerful, whether it's being called a bitch or bossy or too aggressive for things that men would be rewarded for. But we're at an inflection point, I think, in our culture, where women are speaking truth to power no matter the name-calling or the consequences, because what's at stake for our children and our humanity is just too high. We can no longer negotiate truths or accommodate people's responses or contort ourselves into society's image of us. It's time to speak up, to step up, and to show up for ourselves and one another and for the vision of this country that we all deserve. Marianne is stopping at nothing in her pursuit of reclaiming America, and I get the feeling that we all better buckle up because she is going to lead us to a reckoning in this country that may be just in time. Have a listen. Welcome, Marianne Williamson. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So when you ran for Congress in District 33 in California, what year was that? 2014. 2014. 
A lot of people were excited that you were getting into politics, but you were hardly getting into politics. You've been in politics for a long time, but we all start somewhere. And since the election, a lot of people, especially a lot of people in our community, um, have been starting to see that the personal is in fact political and have been leaning in and becoming more active in civic engagement <clears throat> and politics. So can you share a little bit about your journey of becoming politicized in your life and in your spiritual practice? I don't see politics so much a part of my spiritual practice. I see it part of my human practice. And I see my spirituality as about being human. I don't see spirituality as a separate category of existence. Here's relationships, here's the body, here's finances, here's career, and then over there is another category called spirituality. Right, like now I'm going to be spiritual. Well, spirituality is the underpinning to everything else we do because spirituality has to do with self-identity. Who am I? What is my relationship to the universe? What is my relationship to the earth? What is my relationship to other people? What is my relationship to tribe? So if my relationship to one person matters, then my relationship to larger groups matter. If my relationship to my family matters, then my relationship to my community matters, then my relationship to my country matters, then my relationship to my species matters. So, you know, the original Latin root of the word politics means of the people. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't get precious with words like spirituality, mm -hmm. and I don't get precious <laughs> with words like politics, getting into politics, getting into spirituality. I think seeing any of those things those types of things as separate categories is delusional. Right. It all has to do with who we are as people and the stand we take on whatever meaning we ascribe to and whatever values we believe in. I grew up at a time where, because I remember, you know, I was born in the 50s, so I remember Bobby Kennedy. I remember uh, Martin Luther, well, I remember Martin Luther King less. I remember the day he died very well. I remember Eugene McCarthy. I remember a time when we read, even when I was in college, you know, we read Ram Dass in the morning and we did the I Ching. And then we went to a anti-war protest in the afternoon. So I, I lived at a time when there wasn't this separation between political activism and this burgeoning spiritual awareness. After the assassinations, once they killed the Kennedys and they killed Bobby Kennedy, they killed Martin Luther King, and then particularly once they killed the kids at Kent State, there was this separation that occurred because it was as though the bullets that shot them psychically shot everyone. Mm -hmm. There was a very loud unspoken message uh, to those assassinations, and the message was very clear. It was, you will do whatever you want now, disperse, do whatever you want in the private sector, but you will leave the public sector alone now. You will go home. There will be no further protest. We live at a time where everybody likes to think they just invented something, <laughs> right? This is not something the new. new this is something that's been a little bit eclipsed yeah. uh, and hidden for a while, but it's really the reemergence of a conversation which was already brilliantly and eloquently articulated by King, by Gandhi, and by others who knew that an internal as well as external shift would be necessary in order to fundamentally change the world. I think at this point, and I think that if Dr. King were alive, he would agree. I think that we are clearly at a point where it is as true now as it was in his time um, when he was dealing with racism and the underlying racism that was at cause in the institutional 
horrors such as institutionalized white supremacy, segregation in the American South, and so forth, that we need that metanoia now. We need that change of heart now, um, just as urgently, or any external changes we make will not be fundamental. You can't just water the leaves. If, if, if you want to heal a plant, you, to bring a plant back to life, you can't just water the leaves. You have to water the roots. And that is what's, what's happening with our democracy. And I think that the, the left is often far too focused on external issues. If, we, if we, we get it right with immigration, or we get it right with the environment, or we get it right with food, or we get it right with, with income inequality, or we get it right with education. But there, there's an underlying problem which has poisoned all those areas which is the basically the hostile corporate takeover of 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 our of our government um the undue influence of money on our politics the fact that we are willing to uh give short-term economic gain to multinational corporations uh to give those financial profits and short-term interest precedence over the health and well-being of our own planet and our own children that's the underlying poison and we have to look into our hearts to see what's going on there. And there are so many issues that have to be looked at internally, I think, before we can address them externally in a way that fundamentally makes a change. Well, and and a lot of what you're naming, whether it's capitalism, white supremacy, colonialism, are all a part of our core wounds. Well, yeah, but I, I'm not enrolled. You, you just said something that I, I'm not enrolled in. I, I don't, I'm not one of those people who sees capitalism in the same category mm-hmm. as, mm-hmm. as colonialism. Runaway and, capitalism. Yeah, mm-hmm. capitalism that is deviated from its ethical yeah. core. I, I, and, and some people would disagree. Some people think that capitalism is inherently um, evil. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think that it is a um, capitalism. Even Adam Smith said that it cannot exist. It cannot thrive outside an ethical core. So I don't. I think it's the deviation of modern capitalism from an ethical core that is the problem. And so to really make a distinction there, talk about uh, a free market economy. I look at the way you're dressed. I look at the way I'm dressed. Let's not go pretending that we're not um, participating Steeped in a free in market this. economy. And, and also let's not pretend that it would be a good thing if money stopped flowing. Um, there's nothing beautiful or holy about breadlines. So I think that we need to have a, a sophisticated economic conversation. And I think that people in the spiritual community, there is a danger there of, of a rank hypocrisy. If people mm-hmm. who are buying $150 yoga pants are just uh, glibly <laughs> deriding capitalism. Yeah. Now, one of the things that Gandhi talked about a lot was how the economics of a nation should be just like the economics of a family. So I, I don't think I it's that. something that we have to, I, you know, one of the things Gandhi said was that the idea that economics is a verifiable science is one of the great evils foisted upon the human mind. We have been trained to think that economics, quote unquote economics, is this science that only a certain breed of people of a certain kind of understanding could possibly understand. I think we need to bring it home. It has to do with how much should I charge uh, for this product in a way that that you you get a benefit. Like, let's say if I write a book, okay, I'm a writer. So when things work well, I put in a large amount of energy writing the book. The publisher puts a large amount of investment publishing the book. And then the exchange of money has to do with somebody who buys the book, whose life, whose, whatever they were looking for in, in buying that book will be increased energetically because they bought it. So when that works well, all three participants benefit. in the arrangement benefit. Right. That's economics. 
That's righteous capitalism right there. That's righteous free market right there. So what do you think has gone wrong in oh, capitalism that we've forgotten that? What's gone wrong is whenever you are looking for, when you see your fiduciary responsibility, which is, is the corporate matrix here, as the, the idea that you're making more money is more important than the righteous balance of energy. Profit over people. Profit over people. And I don't think profit has to be over people. Profit can be with people. There is such a thing as righteous economics. There is such a thing as a moral economy. I mean, people have been talking about the moral, uh, moral economy since the 19th century. Now, it's interesting because I think a lot of people who talk about a moral economy today think, you, you hear a lot of people talking about how we have a moral economy in a little town in Oregon. Uh, that people are real, um, most of the conversation about a moral economy right now has to do with local economies. And I don't think we can afford to keep a conversation around a moral economy only in terms of local economies, because I'm sorry, it's too late in the game. For, it is a globalized economy. So now, you know, but there is also such a thing, you know, just to call it blood money. You simply don't do it if it's the wrong thing to do. You know, one of the things you see in politics today, whether it has to do with the NRA, you hear this a lot of times about the NRA, but all kinds of issues where politicians don't vote the way their own heart might dictate. They don't vote the way their own conscience might dictate. They don't even vote the way polls show the American people want them to vote because it would be risking their career. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? I want to shout at television sometimes. What makes you different than any of the rest of us? All of us have to make ethical decisions in, in our careers. All of us say, I have to say at various times, if I do this, I might lose my business. If I do this, I might lose my job. But it's the wrong thing to do. I'm not going to do it. That's when your society falls apart. So you can give it a kind of a term like spiritual, but I think that makes us too exclusive and mm -hmm. a little too precious with ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's, it's character, it's ethics. Mm -hmm. It's being a good person. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about something like the private prison industry, um, when you're talking about some of the ways that uh, Big Pharma operates with the over-prescription of antidepressants and so forth, you definitely have a situation that is blood money because you're talking about how huge corporate interests look at certain areas of human despair and say, I can make a profit center out of that. And that is evil. But I have to say, let's be careful with ourselves. It's easy for us to have that conversation, not as easy perhaps, as it is for us to look much closer to home and see ways that people we know sometimes have conversations about what they could charge for something as opposed to whether or not that particular exchange of energy financially is righteous and within a field that their heart really mm. dictates as opposed to whatever they can get. It reminds me of the concept of like mutuality, right? It like, is the concept of mutuality. Yeah. And this is where your spiritual metaphysical principle comes in. If you're only talking about a material world, then there are only so many pieces of the pie, the zero-sum game. So if you win, I lose. If I have more, you have less. On the spiritual plane, there are infinite resources. It's and to be honest, a high-minded conservative vision. You know, I, I, I do think even though my, when it comes to policy, I'm definitely a left-wing Democrat. There's no doubt about it on policy. But in terms of ultimate vision, I think Eisenhower was correct when he said that the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. Because sometimes, really, it is the conservatives who 
in America today who, who will at their best, and I'm not talking about right-wing craziness here, I'm talking about a, a high-minded conservative principle, which holds the space sometimes a little more for how it is infinite what can come from human work, human effort, human inspiration, and so forth. Well, and so let's talk about that, that concept of mutuality for a moment, because when I think about you know the spiritual community, when I think about the political community, I think often what we see is a spiritual community that is so focused on self-seeking, self-preservation, and often neglects the collective and the whole. And then often on the political side, we see the opposite. We see um, a focus on the collective and a neglect of the person, the individual. And it's really a both and at the same time under the concept of mutuality. Well, I have a couple things I want to say. One is I have felt at Sister Giants that the transformational communities, you would say, coming to some of this stuff is wonderful because it's not jaded. Mm-hmm. It's not jaded, not cynical. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like I remember Chuck mm-hmm. Ugar looking at 2,000 people going, who are you people? You know, these, Where left, did you come these from? lefties who are getting standing ovations from huge audiences, and they're not used to that. So there, I think the fact that so many people are new to it is great, because they don't know what to be scared of, they don't know what to be cynical yeah. about, they don't know what to be angry about. On the other hand, I think that there is a, simply a conversation going on, and it slows us down to be too into what community, etc. There's a conversation we have to have as Americans that I think no matter what uh, side of the political spectrum we come from, whether we come at these things from a religious perspective, a spiritual perspective, or just an ethical perspective, is something that the sophisticated person knows, and that is something is politically wrong and something is culturally wrong. You don't have to see this through a filter of any particular community. This is just obvious. Something is off. Something is off in policy, and something is off in the very fabric of our society and how we treat each other. And I think where the conversation moves into a higher dimension is where we do point out the relationship between the two. Now, for me, because I've had a, you know, for 35 years I've had a career dealing with and I always say people don't come to me because things are going right. So people in crisis is, is a topic that has been the core of my work for 35 years. And I know that when your life is in crisis, you can't just fix it by changing things on the outside. Mm-hmm. When you really crash, when you really bottom out, you have to look at who you are, what your values are, what your principles are, and most particularly where you haven't been living them and where you have to atone for your errors and seek to change. But I've also seen, and I think many people are, and this is what you were saying, you know, just like years ago, people would take their adolescent, their messed up adolescent to therapy and say, fix my kid. And the therapist would say, your your child does not live outside the larger context of the family dynamic. So I can't just quote unquote fix your kid. How does the whole family work? And I think that that's what we're beginning to see now that you can't just address individual concerns when the individual is dwelling within a larger social system, which is so toxic and dysfunctional. We have to transform that. And you see this today, you know, I think that we have millions of Americans living in chronic economic trauma. And to realize that the same, all that a nation is, is a collection of individuals. So the same psychological, emotional, and spiritual dynamics that are at work and need to be investigated in order to heal one life are at work and need to be investigated and navigated and healed in order to change a society. And that's what this converse, the new conversation is, the new whole person politics. 
Do you think that this is why, because, you know, I, and I, I really resonate with what you were saying because I didn't grow up in your era. So I grew up during that sort of separation. It was already separated. It was already, there was already a riff and politics <clears throat> was other and it was dirty and it was broken. And so I've really had to reclaim politics. And that has always happened for me personally through those sort of broken moments in my life where an aperture opened up for me to see my life in relationship to the whole in a different yeah. way. And that has always been when I have found your work, whether that was after my divorce, that was the first time I picked up healing the soul of America or um, quitting my job and starting a new career. Like there were all of these moments um, that were either repairs that I was making in my own human being or leaps that I was taking that allowed this new perspective to come in. And I'm, and I'm just thinking about, you know, I've been to Sister Giant, every one of the Sister Giants that you've had. And just this past year, you know, you had, I think six or 7,000 people in 2017 come to this gathering to talk about what's happening in our country through the lens of, of humanity, to use your word, right? Not even from a spiritual perspective, but for, from a human perspective. And so something about what you're saying and the way that you're saying it in relationship to who we are as Americans and who we're becoming is resonating with people in a new way. You know, 6,000 people I think is, is larger than even the Women's March Convention. I mean, that's an enormous amount of, of people, a lot of them new people to this conversation, <clears throat> coming together and, and learning from people like you, Bernie, um, Pramila, you know, like all of these amazing political um, thought leaders. And so what do you think it is about the way that you're talking about politics that's seeping into people in a new and different way? That's a different kind of conversation. Well, first of all, I, I want to go back a little bit. When you said that and, and I really hear you about the generational shift because you don't have the historical memory, institutional memory of a time when it was different. I mean, 9-11 for me was my big mm -hmm. wake-up call because that's when I, that's actually when I had a literal experience of the world landing on my doorstep. Not just a little one. Big, big time, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it behooves us to see, uh, well, a couple things. First of all, when I, when my career started, though, the AIDS crisis was there. So even in, in my career as a teacher of A Course in Miracles, larger societal issues were always in front of me because the AIDS crisis was right there when I first started lecturing. So I never, even putting aside my historical memory, I never had an experience, even as a spiritual seeker later in my life, of the larger collective issues not impinging upon, upon individual concerns. I think two things need to be looked at when you say that the spirit, quote unquote spiritual community saw politics as dirty and over there. Two things. Well, I think everybody actually in my era yeah. had that so experience. So let's talk or that about why that is, because I think that needs to be addressed. First of all, the fact that we stopped teaching civics. Right. If you if you weren't taught civics, if you weren't taught what the Bill of Rights says, you don't know to be appalled when you start seeing it undermined. If you don't know American history, you don't know what a glorious story this is, and you don't have a sense of your own responsibility to its furtherance. That's number one. Number two, I feel very strongly that the primary paradigm in modern psychotherapy has done a lot of damage because it has 
emphasized the idea that one's personal suffering stems mainly from one's personal circumstances. Mm -hmm. You go into a therapist's office and they say, well, what's going on in your life? All about you. And sometimes it's not just about you. It might be you that your husband lost your job, but you can't address it deeply without realizing that your husband lost his job because of all these unfair, inequitable, unjust economic forces. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that the psychotherapist within that traditional paradigm is doing is trying to make you feel better, which has particularly become horrifying in the last few years as the baton has been passed to psychopharmacology. You're depressed about it. Why don't you take this, which will only decrease because you'll have this artificial sense that it's really okay, which will only decrease your motivation to work on the larger political, social, economic issues that need to be addressed in order for your husband to have a decent job. Right. It's contextual. Yeah. And then the other thing is just the basic sense of entitlement. And I think that entitlement has definitely been part of the way this so-called spiritual community has unfolded, including an anti-intellectual bent. I mean, look, I write inspirational books, so it's not like I want people to read fewer of them. But there's more to read than just a self-help book. Pick up a freaking newspaper. Read what's going on. And we've fostered that. So it's been very convenient for us to say politics is dirty and it's over there. That would be my like my saying about someone with AIDS. Ooh, that's Sarkozy. Ooh, I don't want to go there. That's really difficult to look at. Hello? You don't, you don't avoid the wound if you want to be a healer. Well, and I even think that that culture of personal responsibility has really played into this shame paradigm that so many of us are, are caught in. That like, it's my fault, reinforcing that entitlement. Like it's my fault, only I can fix it. I have to carry the burden or I have to, you know, I have to disconnect and protect myself. And it takes us away from moving towards one another. I am, um, I'm Jewish and I was raised with tikkun olam to repair the world that that's your responsibility. You have a larger responsibility than just yourself. You have a responsibility to your tribe. You have a responsibility to your culture. You have a responsibility to your country. You have a responsibility to your world. I feel sorry for people who are not taught that because when you're not taught that, you're not, you don't know your place. You don't know your, relation, your fundamental relationship. You know, there's a line in the Course where it says, do not look to yourself to find yourself because you are not there. You know, when I think about what do we need to move towards? Relationship <laughs> to, with others. Relationship with Relationship. Others. You don't find yourself by yourself. You find yourself in relationship to others. And a nation can't find itself by itself. It finds itself in relationship to others. Well, that's why isolation is so dangerous. That's not right. just for Personally ourselves, but Personally or politically, that's right. For a nation to be isolationist is no less dysfunctional than for an individual to isolate. It's, it's not a, a mentally healthy perspective or position. Well, and it's why this trend of self-seeking, this obsession with this perfecting the self is so ironic because we can't get to where we're going if we just go inside, we have to go towards one another. I want to give a shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon, without whom this podcast wouldn't be possible. Citizen Podcast is reimagining citizenship for all of us. Not the kind that requires documents and papers, but an everyday practice of how we take care of each other and the whole of society. We're daring to ask hard questions about who we are and who we are to one another and what's possible when we show up for the well-being of the whole. But making a good podcast takes a village, and so we're building one on Patreon. 
And what we love about this platform is that it's mutual. It's about supporting one another. By joining this community, you get lots of good stuff from us, like practice tools and meditation, community forums that inspire conversation, and lifestyle content that you can trust. And not only does it keep us going, but it keeps us honest and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. You can opt in for as little as $1 per month or $5 or $10 and so on. And think of it this way, for the equivalent of one coffee per month or one yoga class or one dinner, you get to be a part of something bigger, a call to action to become better citizens for humanity. So check us out on patreon.com forward slash C-T-Z-N-W-E-L-L and build with us as we create a culture of well-being that works for everyone. Okay, I want to shift gears. You recently posted on Twitter this. The old, I'm going to call it paradigm. (laughs) American women think, wow, that seems crazy to me, but keep their mouth shut. The new paradigm is that American women think, wow, that seems crazy to me, and then they say no. And so I want to ask you about being a strong woman. Because I can relate (laughs) to being an outspoken woman. But I've also been called a bitch. I've been called ambitious. I've been called aggressive. I've been made to feel unwelcome. I've been made to feel invisible. And you too move in male-dominated spaces, right? Whether it's politics or publishing or business. And so how, how do we handle that, right? There's this Me Too movement. There's, this, there's clearly this uprising of women reclaiming their voice and their place as a part of the whole. And yet, you know, still in our culture, strong women are characterized as too aggressive, too, you know, strong, too violent, too, I mean, all the things. So, so how do you deal with that personally? And what do you think is our role as women to disrupt that, right? Because I, I also believe that our voice is really necessary and we kind of need to blow through that. The fact that our voices have been so systematically silenced for so many centuries has not only oppressed women, it has not only hurt women, it has hurt the world because we are driving with only one light rather than two headlights. So it has hurt the entire world that history, modern history, has been forged with only a male-dominated rather than an equally uh, shared perspective between men and women. I've certainly been called a bitch a lot. It's funny that you say uh, that you've been called ambitious. If a man is called ambitious, it's That's considered right. a compliment. That's right. So I think that we, we all realize that there is an issue here, that quote-unquote strong women are likely to be looked at a certain way uh, and defined a certain way and described a certain way and criticized a certain way, not just by men, by the way, but at least as much by other women, yep. I'm sad to say, uh, as by men. So this, that, first of all, just are having that conversation right there, knowing that game for what it is, um, and, and speaking to it when we hear another woman criticized on that basis, not, being, not shutting up right there. I have always felt in my career that I wasn't saying anything everybody I know wasn't saying. It's just that I was saying it when the lights were on and the microphone was on. 
I have a career saying things that everybody I know is saying, but they're saying it sort of in whispers or mm-hmm. late at night on the phone. And you hear people say, I think it's, that sounds crazy to me. If it sounds crazy to you, it's probably because it is crazy. So, for instance, right now we have a head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt. And there is a particular pesticide, uh, chlorpyrifos, something like that. And under the Obama administration, because research strongly indicates that this pesticide does damage to children's nervous systems, their brains, during their developing years, all of those scientists at the EPA recommended permanent ban on this pesticide. When Scott Pruitt became head of the EPA, in or, he, he feels that his um, advocacy on behalf of Dow Chemical and his serving the financial interests of Dow Chemical to make a profit on this pesticide overrides the health needs of the American child. Right. Now, what American woman wouldn't say, that sounds crazy to me. Well, don't just whisper it, girls. Shout it from the Shout mountaintop. It. Shout it. You know, when I turned 50, somebody said to me, 50 is the age past which you don't care what they think anymore. And it was funny because I remembered her saying that because it was true. It's something happens at 50. It's like, so what are they going to do? Throw eggs at me? Particularly, and I've had those eggs thrown at me, but, but particularly given what they're going to do to some woman in some of these Middle East cultures, what they're going to do to them, hello, if, if, if they don't cover their face. So I always feel that I have to speak not just for myself, but for women all over the world who don't have a voice. But I'll tell you something even more powerful happens at 60. At 50, you don't care if they don't like it. At 60, you have to say it. It's kind of like when you have a child and, you're, and you, you, the milk is coming out of your breast. It just has to express itself. Because, and, it, and it's a beautiful analogy because you, you have, your breast, your body has to nourish that child. Or it backs up in your body. And with age, we have to nourish the future or it backs up in our souls. That's why, and you and I have had this conversation, this ageism thing has got to stop. The older you are, the more you know some things, and the younger you are, the more you know some things. But I think that the idea of the wisdom that emerges when you've been around for a while, you've seen, this isn't your first rodeo, and you've seen how these things play out historically and it makes you less scared to say it, is so needed now. And, so so, and I think young people need to see it modeled. I saw this headline the other day that said, um, the patriarchs are falling, but the patriarchy is still very much alive. Yeah, I read that article. It's a Susan Faludi article. I also think I have been somewhat concerned with some of the Me Too movement issue because I think the power to accuse right. must be wielded mercifully. Well, the finger pointing isn't actually getting at the cultural problem. It's just taking that down. too. That too. I think both things. Her, her, that article that you just referred to was more what you just said. But also, I think we need to remember that some of the men being accused. And in her article, she talked about how much easier it is to just point your finger at the patriarch rather than do this sort of less sexy work. Yeah, the insidious work. Well, well but of dismantling the insidious yeah. systems. But also, I think we want to remember that when you do attack someone, this is someone who has a family, this is someone who has children, this is someone who has to make a living, and so forth. So I think that formerly disempowered people, and um, you see this on an individual basis, I've seen it in my own life, it has to do with a lot of the bitch thing you were talking about. When you, either in your life or in the life of your gender or the life of your tribe, whatever, have had to not speak your truth for hundreds of years, 
or even if it's decades in your own lifetime, there is a tendency when you first speak your truth to speak it more forcefully, more aggressively, perhaps more angrily Mm -hmm. than is necessary. And I think maturity in a movement as well as in an individual's life, it's an art form, but when you learn ultimately, I'm not going to eat my truth, I am going to speak my truth, but I'm going to speak it with grace and kindness. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to shut up, but neither am I going to use it as a way to bludgeon you. That's when you know you've reached a mountaintop of personal development. And there's um, there's space for both accountability and redemption. That's exactly it. And when you even use a phrase like accountability and redemption, the very fact that you're using the word redemption means that you understand that there must be mercy and there must be grace. So you are going around the country this year with a tour called Love America. What can we expect from this tour and what are you hoping to accomplish? Word of Earhart once said, you can live your life one of two ways. You can live your life according to circumstances or according to a vision. And when it comes to politics, we are stuck at the level of circumstance. And that's not the way to live a life because it leaves you without a deeper understanding of where you're coming from and it leaves you without a deeper understanding of where you want to be going. The deepest level of understanding is the level of story. When I was... uh, little. I went to camp and I come from Texas. And I remember a woman who said to me when I got to camp, who are your people, honey? Where do you come from? And that was very typical of the time and the place. Who are your people, honey? Where do you come from? And a lot of times we ask ourselves, who are my people? Where do I come from? And we think in terms of our ethnicity, think in terms of our sex, we think in terms of our sexuality, we think in terms of our religion, but we do not have a deeper conversation today for the fact that we're American and we come from America. If you're African-American, you're the African and the American. If you're a Jewish American, you're Jewish and American. As women, we are women, we're white or we're black, we're gay or we're straight, we're also American. And when it comes to our identity as Americans, they tend to be separated into two categories, both blinded by their own filter. One is this superficial faux patriotism, rah, 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 that completely refuses to look at America's shadow, where we've gotten it wrong, where we need to atone, where we need to repair, where we need to make amends, where we need to pay back. But then there's another opposite perspective, which is just as blind. People who have become so cynical and so angry and so concentrated on the places where America has gotten it wrong, that they have no recognition of the larger story, which includes the larger story of struggle, which ends up minimizing and dishonoring the memory of our ancestors who have addressed those wrongs and made them right in their time. The truth of the matter is, America is a glorious story. You know, when you look at the founding of this country, and I understand that Jefferson owned slaves, and I understand that Washington owned slaves, we do not look at the signers of the Declaration of Independence and look to them as personal role models, but to look at them without deep respect for the principles 
that they nevertheless bequeath to us is simply blindness about history. I mean, it was based on those principles that Martin Luther King argued civil rights. It was based on those principles that abolition argued that slavery therefore should not exist. It was based on those principles that women got suffrage. If, if, if they established the principle that all men are created equal and that God created all men equal, that larger, deeper philosophical underpinning, all men are created equal. That's why you can't have slaves. That's why women get the right to vote. That's why you can't have segregation. That's why gay people should be able to marry and so forth. And if we are, e, and the principle of e pluribus unum, that out of many we're one, that's where identity politics needs to remember the unum part. Mm -hmm. It's not just your color, it's not just your ethnicity, it's not just your culture, it's this underlying connectivity without which we are not dwelling in our wholeness, either individually or as a nation. So I, I'm a romantic about American history. And I think the left too often acts like it's too cool to be patriotic or too cool to talk about issues of morality when traditionally the left did talk about issues of public morality. Poverty. Poverty is a, is a moral issue. Economic injustice is a moral issue. Mass incarceration is a moral issue. Environmental desecration is a moral issue. These issues that, that we think of often as progressive issues shouldn't even be seen as right or left, not in terms of what the issue is. They should be seen as a family conversation that we need to be having. And the very founding of this country, the overthrow of aristocracy, once again, if, if kids aren't taught this, if you're not taught civics, if you're not taught history, I want to have this conversation because to me it's a romantic conversation, it's a beautiful conversation, that before the founding of this country within the Western world, the idea of a monarch, the idea of an aristocrat, I remember when I was a little girl being taught that the French king was considered the sun, the sun king, the divine right of kings, that the paradigm, this is so profound, the paradigm was that God gave the king, the divine right to rule. And so all of the major resources of the country by law and by tradition were in the hands of the king and the king's cronies or the aristocracy. And nobody else had any right to ownership of land, had any right to education, had any right to wealth creation or opportunity, and had no right to believe that their children could do any better. The founding of this country ideationally, philosophically, completely reputed that paradigm. Now you can say, yeah, but they didn't live it. Well, duh, you're just new to history class, so you think this is like new? The point is that American history and the trajectory of American history has been one in which generation after generation, there have been those who saw that idea that in this country it wouldn't matter who your parents were, it wouldn't matter your class, it wouldn't matter anything that you too could have an education, you too could, could create wealth, you could, too could own, you too could better your life, self-actualize. This, this, this idea of American democracy is so radical, and we still haven't fully embodied it, obviously. It is not only radical politically, it is radical philosophically, it is radical spiritually. It is really the idea that self-actualization should be possible for everyone. That's a holy idea. And the, and the founders said that. God created it that way. Well. In every generation, there have been those who've, who've been seized by that, on fire with that possibility, lived for that possibility, struggled for that possibility, and in some cases, died for that possibility. And then there have been those 
who said, oh, let's not. And FDR called them economic royalists. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders called them economic royalists. They basically really believe, and this is what we need to understand. First of all, that contest is as alive today as ever. And today, the new aristocracy, we have subconsciously reverted to an aristocratic paradigm. That's right. You can call it corporatocracy, oligarchy, plutocracy. It's the same old thing coming back around again. And just like aristocrats of old, they honestly, honestly, sincerely believe it's the better way to run a country. So the contest is not new. But when you look at it only from, from a cynical perspective, cynicism is just an excuse for not helping. You know, in Judaism, there is a is saying, every generation must rediscover God for itself. And that's what's happening in America. We have to fall in love with this ideal again. We have to recognize the profundity of this. It's not just about you getting what you want or about me getting what I want. It's about... It's about living into a possibility for everyone. That's what, you know, even in feminism and sisterhood, I, I think we need to, to always remember that feminism lacks, lacks meaning outside the recognition that sisterhood is part of it. It can't just be that I get what I want. Mm -hmm. It's that we get. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm not supporting other women, it's not enough that I'm saying, well, as a feminist, I deserve. Yeah. I started noticing many years ago I, because I love American history, and I think it's such an amazing story, spiritually and philosophically, I started noting years ago that when you talk to an audience on July 4th, and John Adams said he hoped that July 4th would be a day when Americans would revisit first principles, I noticed when you talk to Americans, I don't care if we're on the left or the right, Americans have an instinctive understanding that this country has a covenant with history. And I notice people's eyes, they want to hear. Mm -hmm. they, they don't remember what they learned in school or, or, or they didn't learn it in school. That God created all men equal, e pluribus unum, that religious freedom. You know, we, we learned it when we were kids. People came over here because they couldn't practice their, freedom, their religious freedom. Well, there are two ways of looking at it. One is the fact that Trump is anti-Muslim is disgusting. But then there's an even deeper way of looking at it, which is we don't do that here. <laughs> Religious freedom is a pillar of American democracy. It doesn't matter if you like Muslims. It's just like it doesn't matter if you like gay people. In America, all people are created equal, all people endowed by God with the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Therefore, whether you like them or, or not, the Constitution and the Declaration declare that they have an inalienable right to the pursuit of happiness. And so you take it beneath just the personal. It's not about what you like that religion or not. It's that religious freedom is a pillar of American democracy. It's fundamental. Words, exactly. And as a nation, as well as an individual, you can't just live according to your circumstances. You have to live according to your values. Another value in, in America is that the government is supposed to broker the interests of individual liberty with a concern for the common good. That's how our Constitution is written. So if you don't know that, then the fact that the government is basically bought and sold in this system of legalized bribery right. by corporate interests, as opposed to concern for the common good, you it's don't even know to be upset by it. Yeah. You don't even know to say, whoa, that's not what we do here. Right. And then, of course, the, the last one is one that was not in the Constitution of the Declaration, but was articulated by by um, Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, 
And that's that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people will not perish from the earth. Well, let me tell you something. If we don't act and act somewhat quickly, it's about to. Well, and I think it's profound that you're centering love in this story because I think that there's a lot of expressions of activism and politics, even on the left side or the progressive side that leave love out. Ah, every bit. Let us not kid ourselves. A smug, self-righteous, vicious left-winger is no less frightening than a smug, self-righteous, vicious right-winger. I want to tell you something happened to me not long ago. I, um, I put on my Instagram, I have a girlfriend who is a Trump supporter, and she's a close girlfriend, and we have kind of navigated this by, for the most part, we just don't talk about politics. And she had asked me to post on my social media about her, a skincare line that she is promoting. And I thought, well, how am I going to do this on Twitter? My Twitter is really serious, and I can't promote skincare, et cetera. So I thought, okay. I'll take a picture of her with her skincare and put it on Instagram and make a little comment about how Alana is a Trump supporter and I'm not, but we're girlfriends. And one thing we can agree on is collagen. I thought it was light. I thought it was light and breezy. Well, did you see the comments? I did not. There were some of the comments. Some people were like, isn't that cool? They can, you know, they've carved out this sacred space for their friendship where they're protecting that. And other people, some people, were so vicious and making comments and uh, casting aspersions that were so um, dark that I ended up having to, um, to, I just took the whole thing down. It just was not helpful. But I saw that. And I, you know, Gandhi said, the end is inherent in the means. Vicious, hateful people will not bring peace to the world. And I, I talked about that in, in, in Return to Love, that if we have you know bombs going off in our head that we're lobbing at other people, we're hawks, we're not doves. So that's that place, the intersection of the personal and the spiritual. You know, um, we can resist. We can passionately resist. We can passionately work in repudiation of authoritarian policies without personally demonizing anybody. Well, and we can even be angry, Pardon? right? We can be furious and angry. Well, that's a word, you know, moral outrage. I don't think is, I don't feel moral outrage is born of, of anger. Yeah. It's born of a fierce uh, impulse within the human being to protect life. Yeah. You know, there is a common anthropological characteristic of every advanced mammalian species that survives and thrives is the fierce behavior of the adult female of that species when she senses a threat to her cubs. So if I see a lion or a tiger or a bear going after any body or any animal that comes after their cubs, do we look at her and say she has anger issues and she's strident and she needs to do some personal work on her anger? Or do we say she is serving the impulse of the propagation and the survival of her species. And any species that does not protect its young is is not displaying, for all intents and purposes, the intention to survive. So if I'm saying, stop right there, Scott Pruitt, you are not, I will not, I will do do anything I possibly can to stop you from allowing the the distribution and the manufacture of that pesticide that will kill human babies, that will hurt the brains of a human child. Then you're going to call me an angry bitch? 
and which, which is a very big issue for women because, oh, I want to be a nice girl. You know, a, a meaningful life is, is not a popularity contest. And, you know, if we're going to really be in leadership positions, the real leader is not a people pleaser. What is your vision? Where are we going? Like, what keeps you going in this relentless path that you, you've chosen for <clears throat> love and justice? In The Course in Miracles, it says that God has the answer to every problem the moment the problem occurs. So from a spiritual perspective, and this is where the deeper spiritual conversation to me does come in. It comes into strategy. So there are two ways of living your life. And this has to do with both our individual as well as our collective movements forward. One is you have to bring a, think of your mind and your life as a computer, and you have to bring down a blank document and figure out what to do. The other is that there is an undeletable file. You can call it God's will, God equals love, will means thought, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's divine architecture, just like the acorn already has within it the program to become an oak tree. The embryo has within it the program to become a, a, a baby. You and I have within us the program to become the women we're capable of being, and the species has within us the programming to be to have heaven on earth, basically, a world at peace and so forth. The difference between us and the acorn is free will means we can say yes or we can say no. Right. We can choose now, it or we can't. Now, the beauty of the idea that God has an answer to every problem the moment the problem occurs, this is where you really bring in the spiritual or love has the answer, whatever language, is the idea that I can't fix it, you can't fix it, he can't fix it, she can't fix it, but in collaboration with each other, we will, as we allow ourselves to be guided, not just to try with a strategic mind, but to be guided. So you need prayer and meditation. You, you have to go beyond the mortal mind. You will be guided. You will be led into kind of personal purification of fear-based thought forms, etc. cetera. And, and at that point, as the Course in Miracles says, you will not be alone for you will be joined by mighty companions. So you find yourself meeting other people who are bringing their skill set, their expertise, and you find yourself in a matrix and a network of human interaction where you're not just hanging out with people. You are brought together with people to collaborate in this very exciting, very exciting collective effort at bringing forth a goodness that none of us alone can bring forth. Well, and and that's what the 60s had. It was a sense that we were all doing something together. And I think that that's in the air again today. And, and it's about time. We are reimagining a citizenship where everyone belongs. And that calls us to fight for the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. Among them, 800,000 young people are living in fear because of the DACA crisis. An attack on immigrants is an attack on all of us. We need to fight to keep our families together and ensure the well-being of everyone. Please make it a practice of your citizenship to demand permanent protection, dignity, and respect for our undocumented communities. You can learn more about how to engage at fairimmigration.org and unitedwedream.org. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to participate in democracy. Marianne is hosting online webinars called Democracy Calls, and she's touring the country with the Love America Tour, discussing how a revolution in consciousness paves the way to both personal and national renewal. You can find out more at marianne.com. 
Special thanks to our producer, Trevor Exter, and DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowd-sourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $1 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes and share the love by telling your friends to check us out. Deep, deep.